Have you ever imagined what it would have been like for Elijah, a man who loved his God and loved his people, yet there he is, isolated from the land of Israel, there with this woman, in Zarephath. Surely his heart would have longed to be back with his people, to bring them back into the straight and narrow way that leads to life. And finally, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, Go show thyself unto Ahab. Now, what a contrast that is if we remind ourselves in yesterday's chapter, chapter 17, where the Lord had told him, Get thee hence and turn thyself eastward and hide thyself. So now Elijah is going to reveal himself upon the world stage. That patient waiting had brought forth fruit. And so with Elijah coming upon the scene, he was going to bring with him God's power and might. Rain would come now upon this scorched earth. I want you just to consider that a little. Elijah would come and with him he would bring the rain. Surely that's the principle of God manifestation, brethren and sisters. The power of God was there in Elijah. Elijah was the vehicle of God's power. And very simply, without Elijah, there would be no rain. Now remember, there'd be no rain for three and a half years, and there'd be no Elijah for three and a half years. Let's go back into the law. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, because there's a play on words here. Deuteronomy chapter 32, and what we want to do now is to suggest to you that Elijah here in isolation, and there he comes upon the scene with the great rains, is a wonderful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just try and prove that to you. So when we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read here in verse 1, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, as the showers upon the grass. So do you see the play on words here? Elijah was away from the scene of Israel for three and a half years. There'd be no rain. And without Elijah, there had been no word of God. There'd be no doctrine. There'd be no speech. There'd be no rain, spiritual rain or spiritual dew. It was not only physically scorched, it was spiritually scorched. And here is the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. For when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we know from Psalm 72 and verse 6, He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the Word made flesh. So the Word will come. And Psalm 72 and verse 6 the rains will pour. And so here then, as a cameo, we see Elijah figuring that second return of the Lord Jesus Christ there upon a scorched earth. I want to go back now to 1 Kings chapter 18. And as we spent most of the time in 1 Kings chapter 17 yesterday, we'll spend most of our time in chapter 18 today. And how fitting it is that the word Samaria means the watchtower or the watch mountain. And so the children of Israel here should have known that God's judgments were pouring upon the earth. And there they were in the watchtower. They should have been watching and waiting. They should have repented to God. They weren't watching and waiting, were they, brothers and sisters? They were still asleep. They were intoxicated by Jezebel. They weren't watching and waiting for 
the signs of the times, the rains that would come and pour upon the earth. And that's a sobering hesitation for ourselves, isn't it? Because we know that Isaiah chapter 62 tells us very clearly that we are watchmen on the watchtowers of Jerusalem. And we're living in a scorched earth, brethren and sisters, and we're waiting for the one who cometh in clouds, who will water this earth. And Jesus Christ said, did he not, watch for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. So in this little uh, picture here, we have a parable for ourselves. And so then there's a, a very appropriate exhortation there with the word Samaria. And, and the, the, the spirit word now uh, reminds us of what a servant of God should be. In terms of watching and waiting. Because we're introduced to this character Obadiah. Look at verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord, or feared Yahweh, greatly. The word Obadiah means the servant of Yahweh. And just as Elijah was that representative man, he was a man of like passions. I want to make a suggestion to you that this man Obadiah was a man of wonderful spiritual qualities. And within this character, we should see ourselves. A time of great affliction, a time of spiritual drought, and he was a servant of the Lord. And as we develop our thoughts together concerning this man and the things that he stood for, we should ask ourselves the question, would we do likewise? In a similar situation, he was a servant of the Lord, but he had a very responsible job, we notice. He was the governor over Ahab's house. You'll notice in your margin, over his house. What an astounding character of faith we have before us, and what a role of responsibility he had. Now, we shouldn't be troubled with that, because God, on occasion, chooses his servants to take on very, very esteemed roles in the courts of men. We, we know of Joseph and David and Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah. They are all providentially placed to influence the affairs of men. And we know the work of Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah, how they work for the hope of Israel. And here, similarly, Obadiah is working for uh, the hope of Israel. But let's cons consider him very briefly now. It says there in verse 3 that he feared God. He feared God. Now that's the word yare, the Hebrew word yare, and it speaks of a reverential fear. But it's a faith in action. It's a, a description, brothers and sisters, that is of a compelling nature. The love for his God compelled him to do something. I just want to illustrate this to you. The same word is used to describe Abraham when he's about to offer his son. And the angel of God stays the hand of Abraham and says to him in Genesis 22 and verse 12, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou yare God, that thou fearest God. This is the very same word that's used of Obadiah. And so with Abraham, he feared his God, so he was prepared to offer his son because he was aware of the promises to his father. So similarly, Obadiah was compelled to act, though his life was being the balanced, if he had been caught by Jezebel. We also see, if we um, scroll our eyes right down to the end of verse 12, that when he's having a discussion here with Elijah, he says that, he yareed, he feared his God from his youth. So what a, a special man we have before us. 
He feared God above men. That's a very simple statement to make. The prophets of the Lord were being slaughtered by Jezebel at this time. Yet his reverential fear was towards his God. And brothers and sisters, as a servant of the Lord, if we placed ourselves in a similar situation, what would, what would our relationship be with our God at that time? It's a challenging question, isn't it? What would we have done one for another? This man loved the brethren and he risked his life for his brethren. How bad was the situation? Well, we read in verse 4, For it was so, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. I'm sure we all know that this is the first time that's recorded in the word of a God that a civil authority persecutes the saints of God. And because it's the first time, it is very fitting and how appropriate it is, brethren and sisters, that the civil authority that is persecuting the sons of God is identified with this woman, Jezebel. A woman that the religious systems would later be identified with, a system, a corrupt apostate system that would persecute the saints. And we know as Bible students that the first time that principles are mentioned in the word of God, that we should take note. So let us take note and look at Revelation chapter 2. The Apostle John would have had this in mind when he was being formed here. The, the personal message of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. But in Revelation chapter 2... Here, the beginning of this false religious apostate system goes right back to 1 Kings chapter 17. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, verse 20, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And the Lord God did with Elijah. She had plenty of opportunity to repent, but she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their plagues. Let's just go over a few pages to Revelation 17. We've already considered this this week. But this woman, this false prophetess within the ecclesia, she becomes now this false religious system. And look how the Apostle John describes her in Revelation 17 and verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. She becomes then a symbol of all the harlots of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Jezebel was cutting off the prophets of the Lord and here in vision the Apostle John sees a religious system drunken with the blood of the saints. So it's very telling, isn't it, that we find this religious system uh, being traced back to the movements of Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18. Yet amongst all this, Obadiah still feared God. And brethren and sisters, there is a very direct exhortation for ourselves because we can so easily pay lip service to God and his worship. What happens when real trials and tribulations come our way, when we have to stand up for Christ? 
when we have to hazard our name for the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we do? What do we do? What would I do? What would you have done at this time, brethren and sisters? What would I have done? Let us not fail to see the spiritual qualities of this man Obadiah, a man who would have lost his life, but the love that he had for his brethren was just too much. And he hid his brethren by a hundred, two fifties in a cave. Now something else that uh, I want to uh, just develop rather quickly, we're in the book of Revelation. I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 11. It's just worth making this point as we uh, consider this time of Elijah. We remember in James 5 and verse 17 that there was no rain for three and a half years. And if you look at a Jewish calendar, the Jews have 30 days in a month. So 12 times 30, you get 360 days in any Jewish year. So three and a half years, and we don't want to get overcomplicated, is a period of 1260 days. So for 1260 days, Elijah, through his prayer, shut up heaven. And then we come to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, and it's the vision of the two witnesses. Verse 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. The same time period, 1260 days. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks or lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Verse 6, these have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So these two witnesses here, a symbol of those that would try and preserve the truth. It was related to a period of 1260 days. And I'm sure you know this, but let's just connect the verses. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Brother Mark's already taken us here. But Daniel chapter 7, and it's the same time period. Daniel chapter 7 and verse uh, 25, we read of the persecution of the saints, the sons of God. Remember, the sons of God were being persecuted in 1 Kings chapter 18. And here Daniel says that this time period relates to him. He shall speak great words, this little horn, against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. And we haven't got time to consider it, but that phrase, time, times, and the dividing of time, time is a Jewish year, 360 times is a double portion of that time, 720, and Dividing is half a time. You get 1,260 days. 1,260 days of Elijah. 1,260 days of the two witnesses. 1,260 days of Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 11 and Daniel chapter 7 are speaking about the same time period. We know from Ezekiel chapter 4, for instance, that there is a day for a year principle in Ezekiel 4 verse 6. We have 1,260 years of persecution. And you can start that persecution from when Justinian was um, emperor of Constantinople. It goes right up to the French Revolution and the work of Napoleon. So what does that mean, brothers and sisters? It's wonderful because what 1 Kings chapter 17 is, is saying is that this is a little cameo. It's a little vision for the saints of something that's going to take place in the future but far greater Unlike a few servants of the Lord in Samaria being persecuted by Jezebel for three and a half years during a time of drought, a religious system would come to bear upon the servants of God during a time of extreme spiritual drought. 
And this harlot would wear out the saints. That's the power of the word of God. The consistency of the word. We marvel at it, don't we? Well, let's bring out the exhortation now. This man, Obadiah, hid a hundred prophets of God in two sets of fifty. Now, Elijah, we said, was a figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that Obadiah was a figure of Christ that was there for Elijah's education. There was something in Obadiah that Elijah had to learn. He had to love his brethren. He thought he was alone. Let's prove this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. And look at this and consider then Obadiah, a man who fed and water and hid his brethren. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about those that will receive the kingdom of God and what they have done in their lives. Let's see what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was a prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When, when saw thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when we saw thee when we were sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king answered and said, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. And the wonder of that passage, brethren and sisters, that Obadiah lived so many years before the Lord Jesus Christ, but he did it for the least of his brethren, and he did it for Christ. He did it for Christ. And this is the spirit of Christ. In total contrast, at this time with Elijah. The state of Elijah's mind was not with his brethren. He thought he was alone. And, and brethren and sisters, there's such an exhortation there. Because if he'd seen Obadiah later on and realized that this was a friend of his, maybe he wouldn't have gone down to Horeb and, and questioned the father. And said, only I am a, I, I'm alone in Israel. Maybe he wouldn't have done that. Well, let's go back then to 1 Kings chapter 18. We want to now consider Ahab. We've looked at Obadiah. What about the king? So we see there in verse 5, And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land and unto all the fountains of water and unto all brooks, peradventure, we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. What a sorry picture we have before us. The king of Israel. Judgments were being poured upon the land. And all this man is concerned about is finding green pasture for his mules and horses. Oh yes, he was a shepherd of Israel. But he wasn't shepherding the flock, the children of God. He was shepherding the, the natural things of this life. The horses and the mules. Now he was the king. And contrast that with the true king to come. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. That will lead his flock to green pastures. But unlike this man. Jesus is described as one who would give his life for his sheep. This man wouldn't. We see later he was prepared for them to die upon Mount Carmel. He wouldn't die for his sheep. 
And so then we have stark contrast of these two men. And so then in verse 6, they divided the land between them to pass throughout Ahab and Obadiah. It says there very tellingly, Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way uh, by himself. So naturally speaking, uh, they wanted to find these, this green pasture. They divided up the territory and they went their separate ways. But the spirit of life is not telling us that at all, really, brothers and sisters. Because of the use of that phrase, the way. And we know that that's a theme that runs throughout the scriptures of truth. The way. And Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? These two men could not be agreed. One man was leading to life eternal. He was in a straight and narrow way. And the other one was leading them to the way that leads to destruction. And they couldn't walk together. There was no spiritual companionship at all with them. And again, there's an exhortation for ourselves. Because Obadiah, though he lived in this terrible time, he chose the way of life. And his name means a servant of Yahweh. And so, brethren and sisters, it's worth asking ourselves that very telling question, which way are we in? Are we like Obadiah, who thinks about his brethren, who's prepared to even risk our lives for the upkeep and the well-being of one another? Or are we Ahab, a man who can't even elevate his mind above the natural things of this life, who just thought about self? Very practical exhortations, aren't they? And we choose. It was going to be a day of reckoning for the children of Israel upon Mount Carmel. And it was a day of reckoning for Obadiah and Ahab. And Obadiah went a very, very uh, different way. And so then, no doubt, Obadiah was deep in prayer. And he doesn't come across green pasture. He comes across uh, something far greater than that. Verse 7, and as Obadiah was in the way. There you have it. The way. Right back to the end of Genesis chapter 3. The way to the tree of life. And who's he find in the way? No, none other than Elijah was in the way. Behold, Elijah met him. Elijah was in the way also. They were being preserved in the way. God's cherubim was preserving the way of truth. And we will see that, God willing, later on in the week. With the whirlwind and the chariots. They were in the way. Behold, Elijah met him and he knew him and fell on his face and said, Art thou my Lord, Elijah? Now, it says there that Obadiah knew Elijah immediately. And we don't read anywhere in the scriptural narrative that Obadiah met Elijah. But we saw yesterday that he was of very stark character and appearance. With his leather girdle and his mantle and his long hair. Maybe just physically he recognized him immediately. Art thou my Lord, Elijah? Now, if you glance down, uh, right down to verse 15, there's a, a verbal um, discourse that takes place between Obadiah and Elijah now. And you see here that Elijah, we could summarize it, he's rather sharp and abrupt with Elijah, uh, Obadiah. Um, he overlooks, really, that the qualities of this man we would suggest. We see there in verse 13 that Obadiah pleads with him and informs him that he was hiding a hundred prophets of God, but Elijah was having none of it. He looks at Obadiah and he says, There, as the Lord of hosts liveth, surely whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto Ahab today. That was the conclusion of the matter concerning Elijah. 
But what I'd like to do is just to pick out a few things um, from these verses here to try and illustrate to you the mind of Elijah at this time. We see clearly the, mo- the mind of Obadiah. He says, art thou my Lord Elijah? And that word Lord is the Hebrew word Adon. And it's a mark of great respect. Remember in Genesis 18 and verse 12, Sarah called Abraham her husband Lord Adon. So it's a mark of the greatest of respect. This was the mind of Obadiah. He recognized that this was a great prophet of God. And he had at his disposal the power of God. But notice the emphasis there of the pronoun, art thou my Lord, Elijah. So immediately Obadiah associates himself and his work with Elijah. Notice then, How Elijah replies. Look at verse 8. If you remove the italics, he simply says, I. Not a word or a syllable is wasted there. Just I. And then in verse 11, go tell, notice the pronoun, thy Lord. So he overlooks the qualities of Obadiah. He says simply to Obadiah, you're not related to me in any way. I'm not your Lord. Ahab is your Lord. And Obadiah, as I said, as a servant of God, who had faithfully administered to the children of Israel, Elijah had overlooked this. And we all have failings, brethren and sisters. And Elijah was a great man. He stands as a pillar of faith. But he was going to learn something at Horeb. He was going to learn that it required a still small voice, not Yahweh of armies, And he had to think of his brethren. And he was being reminded there that Obadiah was a servant of God that he should have loved. And so then in verse 15, uh, maybe if Elijah had recognized that Obadiah was a faithful servant, he may not have said that he was alone. Maybe he wouldn't have gone down to Horeb and challenged the Lord God down in Horeb. Maybe he would have changed his mind entirely, but he didn't. And so Elijah says, if Yahweh of armies liveth, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. And that's the mind, and that's the state of Elijah. Elijah was desperate for national conversion. And so he calls upon Yahweh of armies to convert the nation of Israel. Not only to bring judgment, but to convert And that's where his education was incomplete, if we may say that. God of armies can come at any time. And they can chasten and they can judge. But the God of armies can never convert. An individual believer has to be touched. Just as the widow, for two and a half years with Elijah, she was touched. As Elijah was that mediator, a representative man as we considered yesterday. It would require the still small voice, not Yahweh of armies. But then he says, let Yahweh of armies, I will see Ahab uh, this day. (coughs) And so then we come to verse 17. Three and a half years had elapsed. Ahab, a figure of Baal. Elijah, a figure of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They come finally face to face. Verse 17, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that they said unto him, 
Art thou he that troubleth Israel? So just imagine that scene. Good versus evil. Error versus truth. In all its glory. A representative man. Here, Elijah, as a servant of God. Now we see that Ahab, and it's so um, familiar with the nature of Ahab. He takes the initiative here in a negative sense. He says, oh, Elijah. You've caused all these troubles, art thou he that troubleth Israel? And that word troubleth is the Hebrew word akar, which means to royal water, to confuse, to disorder by agitation. It gives the idea, it's a, a metaphor, it gives the idea of shaking a glass of water so that it's muddied, it's confused. So Abraham was saying to Elijah, before you came along, uh, the nation of Israel, they were quite happy, they were serving Baal. But with all this Yahweh thing, Elijah, you've confused the people of God. You've agitated the water. It's no longer clear. It's become opaque. And Elijah was having none of this. And he says there immediately in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now, I'm sure we know, brothers and sisters, that that word trouble is a rather loaded expression. It's the Hebrew word akan. And I want to develop a short theme now. I want you to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And here is what was on the mind of Elijah. He wasn't the trouble of Israel. Ahab was. It says there in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 7... And the sons of Carmi, Achar, or Achan, you'll notice in your margin, the troubler of Israel. So Achan was the troubler of Israel. That's the Hebrew word. Achan, troubleth. And what did Achan do? Well, he saw and he coveted and he took. And what did Ahab done? He saw, he coveted and he took. And took what? Jezebel. The daughter of Ethbaal from Zidon. And by doing that, he had brought false worship within the camp. What had Achan done? He'd taken of that goodly Babylonish garment, a symbol of false worship. And he'd brought that in the camp. And so Elijah says, no, you're the one that troubles Israel. You are Achan. And what happened to Achan? He was destroyed and his family was destroyed and they were covered in stones in the valley of Achor. Well, there's more than that. So I want you to go now to Joshua chapter 6. Because the language here is very specific. Joshua chapter 6. Remember Achan, he took of the goodly Babylonish garment, where? In Jericho. And Jericho, after the falling of the walls went under a curse. We see here in Joshua 6, verse 26, And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Curse be the man. Before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth the city Jericho, he shall lay the foundations thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So when the walls of Jericho fell down, Jericho was under a curse. And Achan had taken of the goodly Babylonish garment. But it was all cursed. It was all to be utterly devoted to God in destruction. That's the, heart, the, the idea of the word curse there. Devoted to God in destruction. It was a form of worship. 
Now, when you come back to 1 Kings chapter 16, what had happened? Under the patronage of Ahab. And I'm sure you know. We see there in verse 34 of 1 Kings chapter 17, in his days did heal, whose days? Ahab's days. In Ahab's days did heal the Bethelite, build Jericho. And you see there at the end of the verse, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. So he was the troubler of Israel. Uh, Jericho was cursed, yet this man, heal the Bethelite, had rebuilt it. And Ahab, supposedly a representative of God, should never have allowed that to happen. I'm not the one that troubles Israel. You are, Ahab. You've taken of a goodly Babylonish garment and you have rebuilt Jericho. And you now are under the curse. And he was. And Jezebel. And all his sons. So then, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, going back... Elijah then, with this inner confidence, the confidence that God had sent him, he says there in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets uh, 450, and the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the groves uh, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. And verse uh, 20, So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. So, there was going to be the challenge between Baal and Yahweh, and it was, be, it was going to take place at Mount Carmel. And what I'd like to do, if you allow me, I want to develop a theme for you. Because Elijah calls to Ahab, gather to me all Israel. And this is a work that has yet to take place in its completion. If I ask you, brethren and sisters, where's the first time that God speaks of a great gathering that will take place when Jesus returns, where would you say? What scriptural passages would come to mind? Well, you might be surprised that it's in Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis and chapter 49. I'm sure we all know that this relates to the prophecy of Jacob. You might be surprised that here in this prophecy of Jacob, just prior to the death of this patriarch, he speaks of these wonderful prophetical things that will come upon the earth, particularly in relation to the tribes. He speaks of Shiloh and he speaks of a gathering. Genesis 49 then and verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which ye shall before in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear the sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel your father. Now look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet and Shiloh shall come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now we know that the word Shiloh should be a proper noun. It means the bringer of peace or the bringer of tranquility. I'm sure we all accept that that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I find it remarkable, brethren and sisters, that though the Lord Jesus Christ was preached in Genesis 3 verse 15, we have a gathering of the people there in the mind of Jacob. Isn't that extraordinary? The gathering. And Elijah says, gather to me all Israel. And there in Genesis 49... At the time when Shiloh shall come, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gathering of the people shall take place. Well, let's go to Malachi chapter 4. So it's a work that embraces the entire scope of the word of God. From Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. 
Malachi uh, chapter 4 then, and we're familiar with these verses, but let's just remind ourselves of them. Behold, I will send you, verse 5, Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1 verse 17, and these words could be related to John the Baptist. A man who prepared the way of the Lord, he was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he spoke of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which was AD 70. But there's more than that. I'm sure we all know there's more than that. Let's go over to the previous chapter, Malachi chapter 3. Here we have the heart of this subject. Verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of armies. So we have a messenger and a messenger of the covenant. And the messenger comes before the messenger of the covenant. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with this interpretation, but would you be able to go to the references? Let's lock, let's lock down this interpretation. Please turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 7. I want to try and prove to you that it was John as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ during his first advent, but there's something greater to come, and I want to demonstrate this to you. Luke chapter 7, then. It's important to, to interlock these references so that we've got a robust argument to this debate. Luke 7, then, and verse 26. Jesus said concerning John, But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before them. That's the same language as Malachi 3. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So you could conclude from Luke chapter 7 that the messenger is John, and the messenger of the covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more than that. I want you now to go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and we have the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fitting, isn't it, that Elijah and Moses were there, speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read concerning the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, it says that they were speaking to him concerning his exodus. Not his decease. Elijah had led an exodus. Jesus Christ was about to lead an exodus from death to life. And we'll suggest to you that Elijah needs to lead an exodus in the future. Gather to me all Israel. Remember the theme we're trying to develop? Well, Matthew chapter 17, I think is relatively conclusive here. Verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain after the transfiguration, Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, What then say the scribes, that Elijah must first come? Elijah must first come and restore all things. He says in verse 11, But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall they also, the Son of Man, suffer of them. I think there's three key points there, brothers and sisters. The first point is that Jesus said, Elijah must first come and restore all things. The second point there was that Elijah had already come in the form of John the Baptist, but they did not accept him. And so Elijah would have to come again. 